Well, welcome. We are beginning the Advent season today. And Advent simply means the, the coming of a notable or important person. And at the time, 2,000 years ago, it was the Advent of Christ, his first Advent that we celebrate during this Christmas time. But at the same time, there's also many parallels to the second Advent of Christ, when he's going to come back again. Um, for me, Christmas has always been sort of this, this magical time. And ever since I was a little child, I loved Christmas. I loved it when the tree would come out, and I loved, frankly, anticipating the presents that were to come. And I remember those special Christmases. I remember uh, all those Christmases that led up to whenever I was five years old, and I got an Atari. <laughs> Anybody remember getting the Atari video game? I'm the only person here. Oh, no, 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 there's some hands popping up. Okay. Space invaders, asteroids, all that good stuff. And then I got a little older, and then I was anticipating a Commodore 64. My, my Christmas memories is, you know, regarding presents seem to revolve around video games. But it all kind of hit this apex when I was 11. Because when I turned 11, my family got a VCR. A VHS. I know we may have some beta people out there for that short-lived time it was available, but this was a VHS VCR. Now I could watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars as much as I wanted. It was always available on that VCR. Now, after that, you know, like I said, things hit like an apex whenever I turned 11. Because for some reason after that, Gifts didn't have the same shine to them, is the only thing I can describe it. They just didn't bring that same impact of happiness that they did. And I remember feeling a little down about that as other Christmases came, because I was anticipating this, this morning where I'd rip everything open and I would have that same joy and happiness that I had, only it didn't seem to work that way. And then subsequent Christmases were kind of the same thing. And then, frankly, as we start getting older, we have to deal with harder and harder circumstances in life, don't we? We've got to deal with things like sickness, sickness of people that we love. We have to deal with deaths of people that we love. I remember when my, my mom had a heart attack. I remember when my dad had a stroke. I remember when my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And I have a feeling that many of you remember those moments as well. It's those tough moments. It's when you feel like your knees are buckling. It's when your, your stomach drops. It could be from the rebellion or loss of a child, but all of these things can even make the Christmas season incredibly difficult for you. As a matter of fact, I know there's some of you out there that if you had your way, the uh, calendar would end the day before Thanksgiving and it wouldn't pick up again until sometime after Christmas. Because it's difficult, isn't it? When you've got to deal with the tough stuff of life. And one of the things I struggled with, uh, especially as a young person, was this idea that Aren't Christians just supposed to be happy all the time? I mean, why is it that I'm a Christian and I say I have eternal life, but yet I, 
I feel pretty down and I feel pretty low and I feel pretty hurt. So, frankly, I started doubting whether or not I was really a Christian. I thought, well, this doesn't add up to the Christian life. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. But is that the Christian life? Is it just kind of this oscillation between good times and bad times and feeling way up and feeling way down? Is that the way the Christian life is supposed to go? Because I get to this verse. It's 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.16. It says this, and I quote, To be joyful always. And I read that verse, and I think, are, are you serious? To be joyful always? I mean, is that even possible? Is that for real? And I really doubt that I'm alone in that. I think that a lot of you probably walked in here this morning, and if, you, if I were to ask you, how full of joy are you? I would say that you'd probably feel kind of like this empty cup. Not real full of any kind of what you would call joy. So then where is this Christian joy? As a matter of fact, going into the Christmas season, it's what you see plastered all over everything, right? Joy, joy, joy to the world. So what we're going to talk about this morning is this joy that can sometimes seem so elusive to us, even to us as Christians. And today we'll look at two things. First, we're going to look at a definition of joy. What is joy? I mean, we, we throw the word around a lot, but what do we even mean by that? And then we're going to turn to the scriptures and we're going to find three places, three places we can find joy. So we'll start out with the definition, what is joy? What is this joy we're talking about? And then look to three places in the scriptures that we can find joy. So first of all, um, what is this joy that we're talking about? And it's a word you can look it up in the dictionary. <clears throat> Frankly, I find the dictionary definition of joy a big disappointment. Because it just talks about being happy, just being sort of gleeful. And that's really not a good Christian definition of joy. And some years ago, I looked high and low for a good Christian definition of joy, and I felt like I finally found one. I want to share it with you this morning. It was written by a guy named Daniel Bistrom, and he said this. Joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. Joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. Now just sit with that for a moment. He wrote this, Daniel Bistrom wrote it in uh, a dissertation, excuse me, <coughs> that he was writing on joy. And this is what he came up with. And think about how deep this goes. You see, this speaks to something that goes beyond happiness. Because this captures, I believe, the joy of the believer. <clears throat> because it means there's not a circumstance or a problem or a temptation that God himself is not in control over. 
that nothing to the Christian is going to happen in vain, that nothing is going to happen that's outside of God's control. And that's very important for us. Because then we can discuss for a moment about what joy is not. Because what joy is not is happiness. You see, happiness is an emotion. And emotions can kind of come and go. Emotions are dependent on external circumstances. In any given day, you may, you, may be happy, you may be happy, you may be sad, and you may go through two or three of these. You know? It just depends on what happens that day. I was real happy the other day until I found myself going too fast in a school zone. Frankly, I didn't know. I was in Nova there, okay? But an officer alerted me that this was a school zone. <laughs> Things were going great until then. Joy is something supernatural, and it's rooted in God himself who never changes. And consider for a minute the example of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the perfect example of every every scripture. So when the scripture says to be joyful always, you can count on it that Jesus was joyful always. He experienced perfect joy. And yet, Jesus Christ was not happy all the time. When we see his friend Lazarus die, he, he cried, he wept, and then again in Matthew 26, 38, it says that Jesus, these are the words of Christ, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. So Jesus was not happy all the time. So then that's why I really like this definition of joy, this deep and abiding assurance, something that isn't turned off and on by our circumstances, something that isn't turned off and on by what someone may say to us, something that is built on this steadfast assurance that God is in control of all things. No matter how rotten or how fun or how happy I might be in the moment, there is a joy that can land on something much more solid than my fleeting circumstances. So that's the definition of joy I want to work with today. Now keep that in mind because we're going to move into the scriptures now. And I want to look at three places then the believer can find joy. Three places for the believer to find joy. And we'll start with Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4. And there it says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. So we have Paul now. We've actually been in the book of Philippians. We're breaking from Philippians now, obviously, as we move into the Advent season. But he's speaking here about a source of joy that he has. And I want to take a closer look at this passage, but ultimately, what Paul is describing here is Christian community. He's describing this Christian community. The first place we find joy, then, is in community. But let's unpackage this a little more. 
Because Paul lists these four conditions. And he's assuming the Philippians is that they're going to affirm all of these. As a matter of fact, if we went back to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul would speak about the Philippians as being worthy of the gospel. So he speaks of this worthiness they have. So therefore, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, since you're worthy of the gospel, and he continues to form these four conditions that we see starting in verse 1. And you can tell he's gearing the, the Philippians up for something big because he lays out these four objective spiritual realities. So he says there, therefore, is there any encouragement found in Christ? Any comfort provided by love? Any fellowship in the Spirit? And all these he's expecting them to say yes. Has Christ encouraged you? Yes. Is there any comfort provided by love? Yes. Is there any fellowship in the spirit? Yes. Any affection and mercy? Yes. Okay. Well, since those are all yeses, he says then, make my joy complete. Now, Paul's not saying he doesn't already have some measure of joy. He's not saying that if you all do this, then I'll have joy. No, he's got a measure of joy that, doesn't, that is independent of these Philippians and what they may choose to do. He's not saying that. But he's literally saying Fill my cup to the brim. So he's coming to the Philippians with this cup of joy. And he's wanting them to make it complete. Now, there were big issues at this church in Philippi. We've talked about that. There was infighting. There was strife. Uh, people weren't getting along like he had hoped they would get along. There was self-interest. And this was affecting Paul's joy in the community. And it's interesting that even though Paul is a prisoner at this time. Even though he may be in chains, never does he say, make my joy complete by getting me out of here. No. Because Paul's got a joy that's independent of those circumstances. He doesn't need to be set free. It's more about these relationships among the Philippians that Paul's concerned. Then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, by being like-minded. Now, what does that mean to be like-minded? Is he saying that they all have to have the same opinions about everything? Good luck with that. No. But he is saying that they need to be motivated towards the same kind of goal, working towards the same thing for the benefit of the community, you know, like, like Congress does. <laughs> I had a feeling you might laugh after I said that. This is something that you may see in a good marriage, two people working together towards a common goal. They love each other. They want what's best for their family. A good marriage often works that way. Uh, two people moving together. That's what Paul's saying would make his joy complete. And then he says in verse 2, by having the same love. And Paul's now speaking to the love that the Philippians will be expressing to one another. This is the kind of love I've seen expressed in this congregation, frankly. This is the kind of love that you have shown to me and my family since we've been here. This is the kind of love I saw expressed yesterday. We had a home-going celebration for David Scrutchfield yesterday here in the church. It was wonderful to see the people that came out to that event. Loving on that family, helping them through this very difficult time. That's the kind of love that Paul's talking about. It's about maintaining unity. And that's both with inside and from the outside. 
That's about loving each other in the face of persecution, from pressure outside the walls of the church. There's some pressure today growing outside the walls of the church in our culture, not like it was at Paul's time, but it could be growing. And you know, if that happens, I have a feeling that the relationships among us and the church will grow a whole lot stronger as we start hanging on to each other in the face of growing persecution outside the walls of the church. The purpose of this, actually he says, finally, having one purpose. The purpose is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then in verses 3 and 4, <clears throat> instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should, not be concerned, you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. To Paul, the unity and community of the people in this church was one of the keys to his joy. So what causes disunity? If you really believe that Christ is in control of all things, does that mean that you need to be in control of all things. Are you more interested in being right than you are in being in relationships? There was a study done in, at, uh, at Harvard. It was called the Grant Study. It was actually done in 1937. At least it was started in 1937. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and they wanted to figure out what is it that leads to a long, healthy happy, and prosperous life. So they started this study. It was a man named Grant that started in 1937. And he, and he said, okay, we're going to get together 268 men, and we're going to monitor them, monitor them over a period of 72 years. So they took these men, and they were looking at a number of different aspects of their life. They, they thought, okay, we'll, we'll monitor how much they exercise. What kind of friends do they have? Do they smoke? What's their diet like? So all of these men were monitored over a period of 72 years. In the last 42 years of that study, it was, it was, um, held, it, it was monitored by a guy named George Vallant. He was a psychiatrist at, at Harvard. And in 2008, somebody came to this professor and said, okay, you've, you've done this study for all these years. You've monitored this men for all this time. And they, they were even looking at psychological factors in these men. What kind of defense mechanisms do they employ if they were ever challenged on something? So a whole gamut of things. So they wanted, well, what was the final result of this study? So in 2008, Dr. George Vallant, everybody was anticipating this very long answer. You know, this was Harvard and these were scientists. What was it? What was it that led to a happy and prosperous life over a long period of time? And to everyone's shock, this was his response. The only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. After all that study, they determined the same thing that the scriptures are telling us, that God has made us for relationships. There's no getting around it. Christianity is a team sport. 
And we're all connected. And no man or woman is an island. So relationships are key. It's, it was key for, jo, uh, for, for Paul in talking, about, in talking about joy. And when those relationships are broken, or if you're trying to do this Christianity thing alone, you're going to be missing out on this measure of joy because that's not what God intended. Now, I know that there are some of you out there and you've been hurt, and people have hurt you. And you come here Sunday after Sunday, and you know what? It may be all you can do just to walk in those doors and sit shoulder to shoulder with the people. As a matter of fact, the least favorite part of the service is that time when they tell you to go shake hands with somebody. But you endure that because you want to be here. I want to say that there is somebody here in this church that's going to love you. And if you're struggling to be here Sunday after Sunday, please keep coming back. Find communities. As a matter of fact, in your bulletin, there's a list of community groups. I would love it if we could get to a point where everybody who shows up here on a Sunday morning is part of a group. Whether it's a, a men's ministry or a women's ministry or a community group or one of the Sunday school classes that meets here, some way for us to get in smaller groups of people where people can know you and you can be known. It's so important. It, it's, it's vital it's vital to your life. You know, they, they've proven it scientifically, but, but we know it scripturally and biblically as well. <clears throat> so this one, no, and, and nobody said that relationships were easy. They're just not. They're just not. And if you're looking for somebody, some kind of a friendship, start praying for it if you've not found it yet. So first of all, we find joy in, in community. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put... Uh, I'm going to put a little bit of joy in the cup, right? This is a little bit of community joy. This is eggnog, by the way. <laughs> Non-alcoholic eggnog, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> so we've got a little joy in the cup there. And let's continue on. <clears throat> Next, we're going to look at the second place to find joy. And if you would, please turn with me to James 1. James 1, verses 2 through 4. And there James says this. He says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. So this second place to find joy is in, it's going to be another C word, in calamity. In calamity, that's the word I'm going to use for trials here. So first in community, secondly in calamity. And this is one of the most difficult paradoxes of the Christian faith, is that even though we believe, just like that definition of joy says, that Christ is in sovereign control of all creation, bad things are still going to happen to us. None of us wishes that was true, but it's just a matter of the fact. But... For the Christian, pain has a purpose. <clears throat> now, clearly, James is speaking to Christians. He's calling them brothers and sisters here. And then he issues a command in verse 2. He says, consider it nothing but joy. Or count it as joy. And he's calling the reader to make a decision 
to be joyful in the face of circumstances that otherwise would cause you or could cause you not to be. Now that word trials, it can have two different meanings. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, trials can talk about something going on inside of us. It can talk about uh, internal temptation, internal strife, um, something that's going on within me. But it can also speak of things going on outside of me. A, a trial can come like a calamity, like a hurricane that comes in, like a tornado that comes in and wipes your house out, like a sickness, like something you have no control over. All of this are the trials or the calamities that Paul is speaking of. An internal affliction or an external affliction. Then he gives the reason in verse 2 as to why the believer should have joy. He says, because these trials bring about what? Perfect faith. Now, I don't believe that James is saying that you're not a Christian until you go through a trial and then find out if you have faith. I think that would be awful if every time you went through a trial, God was testing as to whether or not you were truly a Christian. But rather, he says it's to perfect your faith. It's to strengthen your faith. The reason, then, the believer can have joy is because they know that God is going to use it to ultimately make them something better. The something better is what we find in verse 4 that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. So why is this? Why does God use these? I mean, I kind of like wish I was just sort of made perfect, right? So you didn't have to go through the hard stuff. I love this illustration that Tim Keller came up with regarding uh, difficulty in the life of the Christian. And he goes back and says, you remember when your mom said, uh, don't eat any sugary food before you eat dinner. Okay, I remember my mom just forbade me to eat cookies before dinner, and there was a good reason for that. It's because uh, candy can actually mask your hunger, and it can prevent you from getting the actual nutrients that you need. So you won't eat the meat and potatoes because you just ate all of the candy canes. So then if we translate that into the Christian life, he would say that Favorable circumstances are sort of like spiritual sugar. So when we're, when we're going through life, we may say to somebody, yeah, I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to be with Jesus for all eternity. Yeah, I get that. But the truth is you're basing your happiness just on favorable day-to-day -day circumstances. And it's only when those favorable day-to-day -day circumstances are taken away, it's like the spiritual sugar is taken away, and it's only then that you go after God how he intended you to. It's only then that you go after those spiritual nutrients that you all desperately need, that I desperately need. It's when that spiritual sugar, when those favorable circumstances are taken away. So God brings these difficult times into our life so that we will seek after the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. God himself. The spiritual disciplines. It's when I do actually have to turn to God in prayer because I am just wiped out by what life is dealing with me. My best times of prayer are not when things are just going my way. My, my best times of prayer are not when I'm just sort of happy. It's when life's not easy 
It's when I'm forced to pursue the feast that my soul is really craving. Now compare that against our definition of joy. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation, then we know that he has put us in our circumstances. If we find ourselves in circumstances thinking this is not what God intended, then God is not really sovereign over all creation, is he? It's trusting by faith that he is sovereign over all things. I think it's important to note that the text isn't calling us to be happy about our calamity. That would be silly. Um, I, I think there's nothing worse than Christians who kind of put on they kind of put on a fake smile when they're dying inside. You know, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus wept when he grieved. So first, community, and then secondly, we find joy in calamity. So I'm going to add a little more joy to the cup. It's getting fuller. We've got community. We've got We've got uh, our second one, calamity. And I want to talk about this third place to find joy. It's in Luke chapter 10. If you would please turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. It says, Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Look, I have given you the authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and on the full force of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names stand written in heaven. We've got this passage now. Jesus had sent this, this group of 72 people to go out and perform these kingdom tasks. And he'd given them all this power to do so. And they're now returning, giving a report on what they had done. And they hadn't done anything wrong here. As a matter of fact, they were doing wonderful things in the name of Christ. They recognized it was by the authority of Christ they performed all these tasks. Jesus then responds to this report. He makes this statement, all of a sudden, sort of an odd statement about Satan falling like lightning from heaven. What's going on with that? And what he's saying there, he's speaking to the effectiveness of the disciples' ministry. He's saying that what you're doing, the, the tasks that you've been doing, are going to spell defeat for Satan. I, Satan is losing his power. It's like he's falling out of heaven like a bolt of lightning. And then he tells them that they have the power to overcome hostile creatures. All statements saying that Christ's authority reigns supreme. His authority reigns supreme. And then we come to verse 20. And remember, they came back with joy. So they're sort of already joyful. But he says, nevertheless, he said, hang on a minute. I know you're all happy about what you've done. Don't rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice what? That your names are written in heaven. And, you know, if I were these guys, I, frankly, I'd be proud of myself. If I, had, if I had exercised demons, if I had done the things that they'd done, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy about it too. But he's saying don't find joy in these things. And he's giving these men a warning. 
He said, don't find joy in this ability that I've given you. You know, it may not be there tomorrow. And then what? Is all of your joy going to be gone with it? <clears throat> you know, God's given you all some incredible gifts. Some of, all, some of you all know how to run a business. You know how to run a household. You know how to make really good grades. You know how to excel in sports. God's given you gifts to do these things. But what happens if that gift goes away? I, is your joy, is, is everything going to go out with it? You know, whenever I was in high school, I made pretty good grades. I could usually make A's and B's without a whole lot of effort. And then I remember I went on to college, and I was taking this class. It was called Managerial Economics. And I got my test back, my first test, and I got a 5%. Yes. Five out of a hundred. Yeah, it wasn't good. I think that 5% was just for getting my name right. Now, if I had all my joy riding on my ability to get good grades, I'm going to be the most depressed person in the world. God is saying, don't let your joy ride on your gifting. That's what he's telling these men. Your joy lies in the fact that you are my disciples, that before God, he's saying, you stand completely unaccused, that you will live for all eternity with me in heaven. He said, that's what I want you to base your joy on, something that's totally, something this world will never, ever take away from you. He's saying that is the basis for joy. Rejoice because of that, not because of a fleeting gift or skill or talent that you may have today, even as wonderful as that is. Ultimately, don't rejoice in that. That promise is for you and I as well. Let's not find our joy in this gifting, but this sacrifice that Jesus made for us. <clears throat> you know, you may not have a single relationship that's working right in your life. You may be finding yourself in horrible circumstances. As a matter of fact, you may be facing down holidays with such pain in your heart, you're wondering if you're going to make it through. But Christ is saying to you, if you are sitting here today and you've trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, what he's done for you through his death, through his resurrection, he's saying you've got reason to rejoice. He's saying you've got a reason to get up tomorrow. Even if everything else is broken, your name is written in the book of life. <coughs> There's going to be times in this season of life <coughs> where it may be very important for you to remember that. Our joy ultimately lies in what's to come. <coughs> and we can have that joy in the middle of completely dysfunctional family relationships. So even the pain of remembering what used to be, you can have joy in Christianity. So we find joy also in Christianity. Way a little more, and I'm going to fill it right to the top. Finding joy in Christianity. Now, <clears throat> I want to remind you of the definition of joy, this deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. 
And in closing, I want you to recall the most joyous life that, that, that was ever lived. It was the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And whenever he was with the disciples for the last time in the upper room in John 15, 11, he said to them, be joyful always. And I love the way the New Living Translation says this. He said, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So how much joy does God want you and I to have? Yeah, we just want that to overflow a little bit. God wants you to have more joy than you can even possibly contain. You know, in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, when he was facing down the cross, when he was facing down betrayal by Judas, when he was facing down the, the scoffing of the guards and the disgrace that those guards were going to place on him and all the pain... He spoke more of joy in the last 24 hours of his life than he did the previous three years of his ministry. So joy is available to you and I all through this Christmas season if we know where to find it. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for the joy that you have made available to us. And I pray now that as we go into this act of communion, Lord Jesus, that we even be celebrating in a deeper way the joy that we can have in our relationship with you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> as we go into communion, um, we do celebrate in a fuller and deeper way the joy that has been made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whenever I was a child, I'll never forget this one Christmas where my mom, she knew I was going to have this long Christmas break before Christmas actually got there. And she knew what a pain I could be, frankly, in bugging her every day about getting to open presents under the tree. So she said, this is what we're going to do this Christmas, Chad. Each day before Christmas, you're going to get to open up one little gift. And it was just little stuff. It was like, you know, a pack of those pencils that had your name written on them, stuff like that. But you know what? It was a little picture of what was going to come on Christmas morning. And when we take communion, it's one little picture of what's going to come when you and I all sit around a table together and enjoy a magnificent meal. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And I'm looking forward to that day when we can all be together and we can do that. So keep that in mind as we take part in this small piece of bread and this small cup of juice, that it's a picture of a meal that's going to come.